0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Erin Cameron and Adam
1: Pawlik.
2: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am your host, Adam Pawatik, with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. We want to thank the uh, Real Estate Forums for putting together this interview today with uh, a name you'll probably know in the industry. It's Fred Wax, President and CEO of Trinity Group. Welcome to the show, Fred.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming on, Fred. This is—we're Both Adam and I are excited for this particular podcast. It's great to have somebody with your kind of experience and background on the recording. Let's start, as always, I'm probably most excited to hear the background story about, you know, how you got into Rio Can, what it was like working at Rio Can, and what the transition all the way to your accession and then transferring over to Trinity. So maybe if I can point you in one direction, can we start with, you know, what was it like coming out of school and where did you start in the commercial real estate community?
0: Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, my family's in the business, and my grandfather had one business where he was a mortgage lender in the 50s and was involved with some, I would say, very high profile people in the development business. And then my father had his own separate company and was actually in the construction business, had an entity called Adams and Wax Construction. And I have an older brother who has amalgamated now that we're the survivors of both entities, basically, and he runs a family portfolio, which I am, I try to be a silent partner, but we speak on a, a regular basis. I have a very close relationship with them. But I like to say that I started my real estate career at about the age of five when they threw a game of Monopoly to me. And I i got so excited when I was doing trading and and my adrenaline would be rushing every time I'd make a deal. And so I think it was innate in my genetics. So that was, you know, that was a I had a very basically a career at school and went to U of T, took poly size and Jewish history, which basically had nothing to do with a career move, but I just was interested in the subjects. And I started as an office boy at A La Page. And this is the A La Page that was actually being run by Gordon Gray and Chris Davis and Brian McGee. And this is like nineteen eighty one and at a time where interest rates were twenty two percent. So I came in probably one of the worst cycles of the business. But I immediately glommed on and the first understanding I had in terms of how to be successful was go find someone else who's successful and make yourself available to this person. And that person was one Rick Matthews from the Matthews family from London who had a very successful real estate career and I became his assistant. And that was my first, I'd say, very positive move in understanding how to maneuver and uh, how to Navigate through a very large company. There were 6,000 employees at the time and worked at the head office. My first salary was $12,500, which was against commissions. And my first year out, and we're talking about 1983, basically. So, two years of being an assistant, I was president's roundtable and made my first $100,000, which was a lot of money back then. So, I did that because I was fearless. I didn't know how to say no. Anytime somebody didn't want to take on a listing, I would take it on. And I ended up selling things to the Whittington Foundation, which was, you know, the, the Loblaws family, the Weston family, and to the head of Tippet Richardson. And I. And that's how I built my career. And in that, I hooked up on the retail side. And the first major portfolio I worked with was for Keg Restaurants, who had bought a bunch of A&W sites and crock and blocks and corkscrews across Ontario. And at the time, went with my senior partner, at the firm and was able to procure 30 deals in one year. And as it turned out, I was working as a junior salesperson with one of uh, larger clients, a gentleman named Avi Bennett. And Avi Bennett had two major properties, one of them being Dixie Mall. It wasn't Dixie Value Mall yet. And the other being Lawrence Plaza. And those properties were 30% vacant. And we had offers on those two properties, one for $11.5 million and one and one for $14.5 million. And Mr. Bennett, the principal of the company, said, what would you do? And I said, Mr. Bennett, I would never sell something until it was in the right shape to sell. And I think you need to lease these up and then you will do far better. That was my first understanding about integrity and honesty in terms of on the business world, because agents aren't necessarily known for that branding. But it was he did not end up selling it and he ended up hiring me. And those two projects, and now we're talking about the mid eighties. I was there from eighty four to eighty eight. Ended up selling for where we purchased a next door land and rebranded Dixie to Dixie Value Mall. So we spent another thirty, so the cost base was forty four million. We sold to Cambridge that property for eighty five million dollars.
2: So 14, what sort of time what sort of time frame had gone by? Four years. It's a great turnaround. Four years. And, and, Lawrence- and do the do the. I
1: mean, you can't do the math, but eighty-five million dollars back then is a really, really big ticket today, right? Yes, it's a huge ticket.
0: And Lawrence Plaza, which we had an offer for eleven and a half million, and we purchased no other land. We sold for fifty-five million.
1: So you're getting a pretty wow. good education in the value and the benefit of real estate investment early on in your career.
0: Well, I also was a beneficiary because I had a phantom equity working at that company, so I did extremely well for a youngster and. The other thing is, is that it also introduced me because these two properties were very high profile and there was a myriad of buyers. And at that point in time, I had offers to go work for Burdak, for First Pro, which was Goldhart family, for Cambridge and for the Latner family and the Goldman family. So, and at that point, I felt I'd done everything I really wanted to do in leasing. So I wanted to, you know, enhance my career in terms of wisdom and get more on the financial side. And I ended up going to work for the next, Three and a half years as a senior vice president at Dominion Trust, Dominion Trust Co. for the Goldman family.
1: So, Fred, I mean, before you keep going, because I mean, I want to, I want to yeah. keep hearing about your progression. Yeah. You know, we've got a, we've a, got a slew, 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 slew of listenerships, listenership. but there, I think there's there's a handful of our listeners that are young real estate professionals. If you could kind of sum up your approach to business in that early stage of your career and what it was that you think made you successful and allowed you to be progressing so rapidly? What, what were you doing? What feedback would you give to young listeners that we've got today?
0: I was in your face, <laughs> definitely. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I let That's...
0: myself, I was my own best advocate and I was competent and I put in the hours. And I think putting in the hours and being seen as somebody who was working diligently and, you know, I was on the phone two minutes before this call and I was on the phone last night at 11 o'clock with one of our partners. So I'm still putting in the hours and I'm going to be 63 in a month's time. But there's no shortcut for hard work and there's no shortcut in terms of core competency and also honesty. When I used to make mistakes, I would sit there and I'd own up on those mistakes and I'd admit them and I'd try to sit there and learn from them and I would tell whoever I was working with or partnering with, I would not walk away from that responsibility. So it's about a work ethic. It's about enjoy and also enjoying yourself in terms of reaping the rewards and, you know, and doing your strut. And, you know, I've always felt that I've always had that ability to, again, to promote and brand. And, you know, I think everybody should be doing that. And and I'll talk about the collateral effects that that had in terms of what really led to a lot of these moves, because after my move to Dominion Trust, which ended up in receivership, I learned that your name was everything which my father taught me. That's the one thing that you have to retain. And I started getting involved in the charitable world. And getting involved in that charitable world led me to deal with a gentleman named Alan Silber. And Alan Silber, when I started at LePage in 1981, and now we're in 1988, was probably one of the most active real estate people in Toronto and was had a very close relationship to the Reichman family. And the Reichman family was, beyond any scope, the largest operator on an international level in Canada, and as I said, an international level in the world, and he had their backing and their ear. So Alan was one of the people I got to meet when I was doing an event and putting in the hours after work, and he was the one who basically owned Council Trust and also owned a fund, which was the Council Fund, which eventually became a company called Reacan. And Mr. Sunshine was was Alan's lawyer. So...
2: Wow, that, I didn't know. As I think at RioCan too, we had uh, John the Gitlin on before because he started out as legal counsel there. So, is that a characteristic that a organization like that would want to see in people moving into the uh, front lines of their portfolio?
0: Well, I think if John was not legal counsel to RioCan when he came on. He he moved into acquisitions. He was a lawyer at McCarthy's that Eddie had known, and for all intents and purposes, my understanding is he will be Eddie's successor. So. Eddie was a lawyer and Jonathan was a lawyer, but Eddie was not only Alan's lawyer, he was lawyer to a bunch of different individuals that were developers that eventually rolled their asset into Reacan. And Eddie had a very great knack for gaining the confidence and performing for his clients. And if you take a look at how Reacan was constructed in the first group of private equity players or private developers that rolled their assets into Rehacan, like Dr. Murray Frum, who also was the president of council at one point in time and worked with Alan Silver. There was an incestuous group of everybody who knew each other. And the majority of the assets that Rehacan initially had was from one Jerry Sprachman, who Eddie was the lawyer for as well. And Jerry had a partner named John Ruddy. John Ruddy is the principal of Trinity. So we're starting to put together a puzzle here, how all this could derive from the same sources, et cetera. And the last piece that was all put together was the lawyer for Dominion Trust was a gentleman at Fogler's. Eddie was a partner at Fogler's, as was Jay Hennick and other successful people who've moved on with very great careers. And Jeffrey Goldenberg was the person I was doing the workout with, with the receiver and the bank with Dominion Trust. And i developed a very close relationship with him. And he's the one who said, you need to meet this John Ruddy. And I said, sounds like a plan. And a little side note is Jeff's son who works at Ria Can and is married to my brother's daughter who was working at Weir and Falls, who does all of my lease work. So, <laughs> and of course, John Ruddy. So I, I'm now at Ria Can, basically in yeah. And this is coming from an introduction where Alan introduced me to Eddie. And Eddie and I really didn't know each other, although there's a cute story. Four years prior to that, we were told that we should meet each other, Eddie and I, and we quietly went to a baseball game together. And a ball landed, and the two of us were seen at a Jumbotron together. And this is where I was still working at Dominion, and he was not with. I don't know if he was a council yet. So it's, it's it was a very funny story. But I had really not, I had really not known Eddie. And Alan graciously put me on, you know, to work with Eddie. And Alan was on the board, and Alan and Council still participated with the reeds. And also, Anna was the head of the investment committee. And anything that we purchased back then was presented to Alan and the rest of the investment committee, which I sat on.
1: So, Fred, what was your first role at Rio Can? And maybe just talk through it. And let's, I wanna, let's keep moving this forward because I'd love to get to your current position and yep. current role. But let's talk about just your progression through Rio Can and what it was like and what the strategies were like and the, the, the experience and the learning sure, I'll, opportunities I'll, you had
0: there. I will go through that very quickly. I came on as the Senior Vice President of Development. And my idea was to develop a business, a relationships, partners, and to help out on the leasing side. And I was basically the fifth hire there. They had a couple of people. And we had $100 million in assets. And the first big deal we did was buying five assets in the Ottawa market from Ivanhoe. And that was our bit first major equity raise and our first foray into strictly the retail side of things because that was really my forte. And frankly, also Eddie's based on his book of business and the people that he was dealing with. So that was the first and that was in in 1995. And also 1995, I had met John Ruddy at the ICSE convention in Las Vegas. My real position, and it actually said in my formal agreement letter, was to manage the business with Jerry Sprackman. And I felt that uh, John Ruddy was much more attuned to where the market was going in terms of the type of business he was doing. And he was already successfully doing business with Mitch Goldhart, and he was already successfully doing business with Kmart as their premier builder, and had built a couple of power centers in Ancaster, in Ottawa, and in Nova Scotia. And the first two deals we did with Trinity were in Moncton and Kingston. And Kingston, I believe, is still owned by RiaCat. So John came in principally as the development partner for RiaCan in 1995, and that pretty much went till 2013, 2014, and where we had basically exclusively worked with John as our premier developer, and then we would bring different people in at different times and not to skip a couple of major events that happened while this was happening, we did a major acquisition of Dr. Frum's portfolio. We did a major acquisition of the Oshawa Group's portfolio. We did a major acquisition of the Bernac portfolio. All these people were interested in going public, and Eddie masterfully convinced the principals that it'd be better to consolidate these assets into Reacan. And that led us into going into what was the biggest jump we had, which was doing a hostile takeover. Of a company called Real Fund, which at the time was the largest real estate trust and was considered the blue ribbon entity in the market.
1: Yeah, can you, How big was it then?
0: Uh, it was a billion dollars at the time.
1: Yeah, wow. Fred, I, I was hoping you could kind of give us some numbers. What was the size of the portfolio in, let's do square feet and dollars when you started versus what it was like when you left?
0: Well, it was 100 million in assets. And I think we had something like 12 assets or 13 assets at the time. And then we were well over $15 billion when I left. And I have to be very careful how I say this because I want to make it sound, you know, the responsibility lay upon a group of people that I got to work with. And you know, the company had well over 300 assets and we were North American-wide. I mean, that was the other quarry, which comes out after. But let me just deal with first, quickly, we do a hostile takeover. Eddie and I are called in to be interviewed by the board of directors. We win the day. We take over there, consolidate that. And then pretty much after that time, I became the CEO and Senior Vice President at Reacan. So that was also my first step into being recognized not only as a leasing or development person, but being an operator. And during my years at Reacan, leasing, operations, management, construction, development, marketing, all reported up to me. And if you were to look at anything, pretty much any lease or offered a lease that was done in the period between... 2000 and sorry, 1995, 2014, I signed every deal. And I would go by Eddie's office, we'd have an asset management meeting every week. And I'd come back with pile upon pile of paper, which would give me an indication as to how the entity was running and how it was doing.
1: Go ahead. Fred, Can I'm curious, you know, at that stage of your career, going from, you know, like moving into operations, as you describe it, what were the biggest challenges? I mean, you're taking on a more sort of serious leadership role. You know, how did you embrace that leadership role? I and mean, I'm really more curious. Like, what were the hardest parts of becoming a leader of, of an entity that as successful and big as RioCan?
0: The biggest problem I had initially, and this started in '95, where we brought third-party people, which I'm I'm still using at Trinity, was to understand you can't do everything yourself. And I was a lone wolf that counted on myself and wasn't prepared to delegate. And I realized if I'm not going to be prepared to delegate, and I'm not prepared to sit there and pass some responsibility, and that people can do things as well as you, but they may do them differently, but they're not going to be you, you're never going to be able to grow. So that was the biggest piece of the puzzle I needed to solve. And I did it. And I did it by hiring extremely competent people that were in the industry, that were young, that were highly motivated, and that were loyal. I will say to you, that in the 19 years, I never lost a direct report, basically, of my time at Rehacan, which I was very proud of. I was very proud that many people became very successful, not only monetarily, but successful community leaders and successful in terms of, you know, being serious people, having families and because everybody was, a lot of people were single and a lot of people, you know, were just beginning. And, and I had people, had you know, I hired summer students and it was a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful and very gratifying experience.
2: And if you we are to look at your uh, career arc, you know, from some of the worst times, you know, through 1991 and then 2008, you know, can you reflect on some of the, the moments that were maybe not so wonderful?
0: Well, sure. Going back, being part of a bankruptcy in the trust business was a major kick in the teeth with someone who has a big ego. But again, I made the best of the situation. And then I made a, another terrible decision because I went to a life company and I said, how is it possible that, I, you know, life companies never go broke? Well, I went to, to Canada Life. So I went from one bankruptcy to the next bankruptcy, and you started to feel that, oh, my God, am I going to be a permanent employee of KPMG or receivers? So it was very humbling, and you know. but I learned from it. I learned what to do, and I learned how to be sitting with a bunch of support staff while they're you know, asking you to sign off on papers from certain people or certain groups, etc., is a very humbling experience but I always believed in myself and I was always thinking ahead of what my next move's gonna be, et cetera. The only time I never thought about what my next move was gonna be was at Riacan and the decision I made to when I decided to leave was done extremely impulsively and it wasn't pondered. A lot of people thought this was going on for some time, but we'll get to that at some point. But learning from negative experiences is what made me much more calm during experiences like we're having right now and that nothing lasts forever nothing bad lasts forever and nothing good lasts forever and being able to roll with the punches and put your priorities straight and you know having a good life partner is it makes life very easy you know it's really what helps to you know balance is everything balance in your home life your work life you're doing things extracurricular that not only affect you but affect the community affect the world those are all things that make somebody a full person and you know that's I'm happy when people sit there and call me or Google me. They see that there's as much of my charitable life as much as my business life. That's important to me, so.
1: I have a question, both, I mean, Adam and I have got young children. Mine are a couple years younger than Adam, both happily married, but, you know, it's, it's a challenge, I think, you know, COVID aside, and let's let's just do that right now. For those listeners, it's April 23rd, I believe, middle of our sort of week six of quarantine, just so you appreciate the time frame of this conversation. But that we're not gonna get there yet. Maybe we'll cover that at the very end, Fred. But you've got a ton of philanthropic uh, initiatives. Of course, you're you know, as you indicated, you're always available for business calls, but you've also, you know, as you indicated, you know, have a happy, successful family life. How do you balance it all? How do you manage to be the person that you are, to be able to make sure that all three different components of your life are being satisfied?
0: One, which is the hardest, is not by being judgmental, (laughs) which I am. am. Uh, You know, Not to get too disappointed when somebody doesn't step up the same way you would step up. And I learned from great people. I mean, in all fairness, I can say anything I want, but John Ruddy and Ed Sunshine and Alan Silber and Jerry Schwartz and the late Barry and Honey Sherman, Seymour Shulick, these are all people that have made huge influences in my life in a positive way in terms of that philanthropy is just a part of what you need to do. And quite frankly, what I did is I took my very competitive nature and made sure to apply that to anything I did. So if I was going to make a dinner, it was not going to be the, if it wasn't going to be the best dinner, I was going to do it. If I was going to do a campaign, it wasn't going to be the best campaign, I wasn't going to do it. And even one year, I remember somebody very prominent. I took on, Eddie was being honored for one dinner, and then I was taking on an emergency campaign. And that emergency campaign for the Jewish Federation was the most successful to date. It still is. And Eddie's dinner was the most successful until my dinner. And my dinner fell between John Tory and Stephen Harper's. So that's the company (laughs) I was in. So my point is, if you're going to do anything, do it right and do it with the same passion that you'd be doing anything. And the answer to the question is how do you make time for it is that very few people in my life are not affiliated in my business life, my social life, and my philanthropic life. They all merge. And I'm blessed in that way that, you know, you like to be with like-minded people. And the most brilliant thing that my first mentor said to me is that when I was a 23-year-old, 24-year-old kid, just coming up, he says, treat yourself like a president. And every good president has We Put Trump aside. Every good president has a great cabinet. And that means surround yourself with good advisors. And I've lived my life that way. And that's one of the first things I tell any young person to come see me, regardless what you do. The other thing I say to people is, particularly young people, which I mentor and come in to see me on a regular basis, the old Genesis lyric, whatever you do, better start doing it right. So whatever you deal with, whatever you do, do it the best way you can. And don't do anything half-assed because if you can do it half-assed, your life will be half-assed. So, you know, that's how I've lived my life so far. And it's worked, thank God.
2: So then speaking of not half-assing it, getting to be the president of Rio Can would not be half-assing it. So when you were at that point, did you ever think that you would want anything different? Or was that where in your mind, had you arrived at the mountaintop, that was the end goal of all this hard work over all these years?
0: I think it's a multitude of things. You know, when I was there, it was Eddie and Freddie, Eddie and Freddie, and that was great, you know, and, and all the accolades to Eddie. He was the CEO and the president, and he rescinded the president, and it wasn't an easy thing for him to do to give it to me. But I realized that I was now managing a huge portfolio of North American properties, and the growth prospects were just not what they were when you take something or help to take something with a group of people led by Eddie and me there with helping them out from 100 billion to over 15 billion that type of growth is just not going to be available also not to be machiavellian or to i realized that the money had been made in terms of you know on compensation with options and you know i didn't see the same growth availability and so was this what i really wanted to do at age 57 or did i have one more turn and it came out that basically I was having a chance lunch with John on a Friday, and I saw uh, help to build with, and Jordy Robbins was now running the development side of things. We were not doing as much with John, and I saw what John was up to, and I was really excited about what I saw what John was doing. And John had become a very, very close friend during the many years working together uh, John I spoke to John he was number 1 on my speed dial we were doing lots of business with them with Kimco with CPP with Recan and I was John's confidant I was uh, one of his executors I was very close to the family so it was a real there was a real closeness there I considered John to be like you know one of my closest friends and confidants so when I saw what John was up to and I saw that am I really happy any longer just managing And sitting in the same position, which I've been in basically for five years, I said, you know, I'm prepared to take that. So I came home and I had a discussion with my partner, my wife. And I said, honey, I want to leave. And she said, are you crazy? You know, look at what you have and look at what you're doing. You know, are you thinking this out? And I said, I will not leave unless I have something that I feel is better. And I will present to you my case when that happens. Well, on Sunday night, from the Friday to the Sunday, I called John. I said, John, I think I'm going to leave. I have a proposition for you. I'd like to talk to you about We can become worthy competitors, or I can help bring your entity, which was fantastic, and bring all the disciplines that I helped at Rhea Can to do with you. And that was it.
1: Well, that's Social a great Monday rolls around
0: decision made. Yeah. And it sounds impulsive and it sounds like quick. And it was. I wanted, for the record, it was on a Friday and the decision was made on the Sunday night. So this was not <laughs> something that was brewing for, six months because there's a lot of people thought that I had this plan. And by the way, there was only one people in all of Reacan that I can out in terms of who knew it within that one week because that was a way before I announced him that I was tendering my resignation. And since that person's no longer at Reacan, I'll out Jordy Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: funny. So Fred, that's a great segue into your transition and the motivation for your transition. Maybe this is a bad question to ask, but what were the good things you took from your experience at Rio Can and what were the things that you changed as part of your sort of molding of the Trinity culture?
0: So it's actually a very fair and it's a good question. What I took to Trinity from Rio Can was understanding the capital deck side of things because that's where I was moving from the capital markets that were open to private equity and and which was a real big step, because you know we could turn the tap on pretty much any anytime we wanted, from that 1995 till 2014, except for 2009. but even there, we did preemptive deals to look after ourselves, which were brilliant at the time. And I think that what I learned is, is that getting younger people for half the price and twice the runway is probably a better idea than holding on to people for 20 years. And it sounds cruel. But I started to realize that, hey, you know what? I can get just as much output. And by the way, I changed 75% of the staff at Trinity when I came there. I cleaned out and I brought in a bunch of, and it wasn't about people being loyal. It was about about trying to get a fresh start, a fresh face and people that had a vested interest and growth prospects where they not only could grow in terms of their careers, but also grow in terms of their skill set and monetary side of things which was really how Reacan started with a bunch of 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and then moved along basically until you know these people were no longer 20. They were in their 40s and 50s. So I took that, the organizational skills, and taking a lot of the disciplines in terms of having set meetings, you know, acquisition meetings, management meetings, asset management meetings, project meetings. These are all things I learned in the purview of working at Reacan. And as I said, I took the outside consultant that had been working with me back in 1995 and took him to Trinity and who's still doing work with other big industrial and commercial names right now.
1: So let's talk about Trinity. I mean, Fred, why don't, we, why don't we just kind of go through, I guess, the belief, the Trinity's business case or what it is that you're trying to do with Trinity, what your growth prospects look like, you know, just kind of give us the run on the company and your objectives. Absolutely.
0: So, you know, John Ruddy and myself were basically developers of mostly retail. That was always what expertise that was affiliated with us were. And John, as I said, when I saw what he was up to, was starting to move into mixed use and some real high-rise, incredible developments. And I couldn't believe the size and scope of these projects because they ranged from a quarter of a billion to a billion dollars. And, you know, the most expensive deal I think we did with Rio Trend which what we used to call the joint venture was about $150 million. We'd never done anything of that magnitude. And quite frankly, I found it interesting given, again, as I said, my family was in the apartment business as well as the retail business. So I found this very familiar territory to be in. And I felt that we had to find uh, new capital uh, sources that would be our partners in this and that would, you know, help to cover our nuts. And also we had a change our dynamics in terms of personnel to reflect a vertical versus horizontal development. And we amassed a team that were basically all experts in those disciplines. And I have a, an incredible head of investments that came through different entities that are great at fundraising and were doing so. Then we've got somebody that our head of development was a high-rise person who was worked for the top municipal lawyer in Toronto and then went to work for one of the premier high-rise condominium developers. We have a whole division in-house for design. And I'd be remiss if not to say that uh, Mr. Ruddy is an architect. He loves to talk about that. So design is a very important criteria to him and to myself, who is an art major. So we have all the disciplines in-house, but we lacked the financial capital based on the size and scope of the partnerships that we had. And let's, again, recap that until about, you know, 2012-13, Rehacan had provided all of John's capital. And that was a very successful relationship for both parties. John would bet his ownership of the developments or the part of Rehacan's at cost. So For example, when IFRS happened for the REIT, they got the biggest benefit and the biggest bump in terms of their leverage because it wasn't rolled in like other entities at a market cap. It was rolled in at cost. And there was a big, you know, 200, sometimes 300 basis points difference. So both parties did well. But because REIT can already got into the development business, Trinity needed to do so as well. So we were basically going from different sources to different sources until we did what i would say our first transformable deal which was the main and main portfolio and that main and main portfolio was huge for us in two respects one it was the first deal that we did with timber creek and the second thing was we started to buy some very strategic corners in the i'm not going to say the gta i'm going to say in the 416 so we found an incredibly gifted and well run entity that has access to capital that were young And dynamic and we continue to they are basically we're doing all our business with them right now and they are bringing us opportunities and we're bringing them opportunities a lot of them that are off market and we have a wonderful working relationship with them i sit on their committee in terms of acquisitions for the deals that we look at and they do the same we speak daily and they are managing the residential for us they have a great reputation a great infrastructure in terms of that. And they are providing us the capital we need and really good insight. Uh, their principles are Ugo Bazari has gone through, for a young man, has gone through many machinations, but his name is Platinum out there. And Mike Saronis, who is the worker bee, who would remind me of myself when I was his age, is a guy that basically is tenacious and is as smart as they come. So we're in this really, we're really, no, but that,
1: well, I'm, not, I'm just laughing only because I'm Serenis. I'm friends with Serunis through different counterparties. And I just want to put out there, because I have to, because this podcast is powered by First National, You know, Timber Creek, one of our largest clients, one of our favorite clients. And I think many of the projects that you're talking about are proudly financed by First National.
0: Well, as we speak right now, we are building our first tower at Rideau and Chapel in Ottawa. And I know we're in many conversations with you guys. And I know the relationship we have. And, uh, you know, if I was sitting there when Reacan was the gold standard when it came to reeds, and when it comes to this business, uh, Timbercrete's the gold standard. And I just, you know how good these guys are. And I am really proud that they've chosen us to be their development partner. And it speaks well of John and the team he's built and the, I guess, the conviction he made in choosing me to be his CEO and president. So, you know, so that's where we really stand right now. We are, our book of business is in the billions right now. We found an incredible partner, and we found one that basically has the maturity and the smarts to sit there and and navigate. And we're dealing with, you know, they also purchased this last deal we did, which was a real tough decision to go firm with a deal that we beat out two other major firms that went, again, never got to market. And Timber Creek came right up to the plate, and as we call ourselves, Timber Trend, you know, that's just another one of the joint ventures. And we're... We're going to be looking at other opportunities, and we're working on a North American-wide opportunity right now, which we can't discuss. Which, if it happens, could knock the socks off of everybody. So,
2: <laughs> I really enjoyed talking this long without bringing up the topic of COVID nineteen. But I, oh, I feel it's so refreshing. We, we, it's so refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> COVID what? <laughs> but I feel we do need to address your take on. You've got a very large pipeline coming into this, and so you know we'd love to get your take on what your plan is, you know, short-term and even medium-term to, you know, effectively navigate Trinity through some turbulent waters.
0: So, you know, it's interesting. was down south and came home, did a two-week isolation, basically didn't see my grandchildren. That was pretty tough. have not been in the office for six weeks, drive around to look at some of the projects that we're doing, uh, don't get out of my car. But I would say to you that, and made it some adjustments in terms of how we're operating, Particularly, I have a State of the Union every two weeks, where the entire company is on the phone, and I address and give an updates as to what's happening on the company. I had only four calls on myself while this last thing was going. This, you know, this interview was going on. We are being cautious, and we are being determined not to let this rule our lives, but we're being responsible in making sure that we are conducting ourselves so that we are adhering to the principles and the laws of the land. So. In other words, somebody two offices away from me came down with it in our office before the lockdown. No one's been back in the office since that time. We are now making our plans as to how to go back to the office. I'm ordering custom face masks for myself so when I ride the elevator that I won't be unfashionable. And (laughs) the truth is, you know, we've prolonged certain closings in terms of, look at that, but we have because we had proper permits. We have two projects that are legally commencing. We are performing a lot of our zoning work through Zoom. And as I say, there's more, I have more emails in the downtime. I'm scared to look at what I have right now from the, just the last hour I've taken off. But it's not business as usual, but it's as close to business as usual. As I was saying before, we started this. We closed two deals since the shutdown, and we firmed up on a deal since the shutdown. And we we're working, as I said, We're working on several files, all with Timber Creek. And, you know, again, it's tough because, you know, you know how busy Hugo and Mike are. But, you know, those 11 o'clock calls are with Mike at night. So, you know, everybody's making the time and nobody's keeping their eye off the ball. And, you know, again, we also have to be cognizant not to be calling during dinner hours because people are at different stages of their lives. And I want to be respectful of that. And I immediately closed the office down. Before it was you know to be done by the government because as soon as they closed the schools, I closed the office because it wasn't fair to families so I'm trying to do right by the people that work with me and I would say the only disappointment I have and you've been reading about this in the paper is a bunch of national tenants who have, are trying to take advantage of landlords at this point in time which I'm very deeply disappointed in given that all the landlords and, and we all talk to each other make no mistake about it are saving monies and rollouts for the individual tenants that need it. And tenants that have balance sheets and that are internationally financed and owned, etc., and are still open for business to ask for abatements and deferrals are, I find it very distasteful.
2: Yeah, there is that tendency at a certain percentage of all the subsidies in every form that are coming, whether there's you new know, mortgage deferrals, which obviously Aaron and I would be paying a lot of attention to or rent deferrals. There is a segment that are going to try and capitalize on when they don't need it and it's an unfortunate side of, of human nature. But it's also good to see, you know, a lot of people in the industry that have the ability to help others are doing so. You know, the landlords can, being a prime I, example. I
0: can, I can tell you that given my network and given the network of the people that work with me, everybody's on the same page. We're saving money for those who need it. And for those who don't need it and they're still asking, or those who are open and are, are continuing to operate in their business, let's put the numbers into a reality. Most people's overhead when it comes to rent on a gross basis is running anywhere from 5 to 25%. If you've got no overhead because you've let your people go and you're still your kitchens are open, or you're selling online and you're doing all these other things, you surely have the ability for less than a month to still be paying your rent. And I just find it, sadly, opportunistic of some people that are doing that. It's
1: just, it's not. you know, it's funny, Fred, you know, I'm on the front lines of that at First National, and we've, for the most part, haven't experienced it, but there's been a number of those that you would absolutely say, you know, you don't need the relief. And they, you know, thankfully, I guess they kind of go, yeah, no, okay, fair enough, you're right, Never mind. You know, I just, I was kind of kicking tires. And part of me goes, okay, I guess that's your right to kind of just put your hand out and hope it gets filled. At the same time, you know, I won't forget that that happened, right? And yet, I know there are lots of our smaller tenants that are scraping and clawing to find the last pennies to continue to make their mortgage payments. And they would never even think about reaching out to their lender saying, hey, can I get a handout?
0: And in all due respect to your business, people are paying the rent.
1: Well, exactly.
0: You know, I mean, our collections in our own personal and uh, and corporately are in the high nineties. I mean, no one's trying. These are decent people that realize that they have a responsibility. But the big corporations, you know, I'm I'm looking on a case by case basis with smaller tenants and working with them to make sure to help them out. But the big guys that are open and the big guys that have balance sheets to ask, and they ask the most egregious amounts. Yeah. It's just not. It's so untoward, and it's very disappointing. Because they never sit there and say, hey, I'll give you your TI back. Or, Ah, um, you know, and guess what? A lot of these tenants that are doing great, I'm missing out on percentage rent right now. So I'm suffering as well. So that to me is, if I'm sitting there looking at, because I have to say that one thing that this has done is without having martial law and the world reacting the way it did, and particularly North America, that without any major upsets in the world, people have acted in a civilized, caring manner. And on the charity side, I've been busy on the phones with charities and raising millions upon millions of dollars for COVID for Sunnybrook, where I'm the chair of the foundation, and giving to, you know, making sure that people that need it are getting it. And it's very touching and it's extremely gratifying to see that people in general have been very decent, that we have a decent society. And that's a great thing.
1: Fred, this has been fantastic. And thanks so much for taking the time to enlighten us and share some of the stories of your background. You know, earlier in our discussion, you talked about how you're always planning ahead. You've always got your next move planned. You said you're 63. What's your next move?
0: I am hopefully grooming my successor. And I hope to step up and be a consultant in terms of, not a consultant, but an advisor to Mr. Ruddy's family in terms of that operation. But, you know, if you ask Mike and Ugo, they don't think I'm going anywhere for 10 years anyway. So It doesn't sound like it. You got all the (laughs)
1: piss and vinegar you need to keep going, Fred.
0: You know, I still, I do two things in my life that keep me, I believe, sound. I pray in the morning and I work out in the afternoon. And so, you know, heart and soul, basically. And that keeps the balance that you need to keep going. And quite frankly, as long as, I'm granted the good health. I don't see myself stopping. I think I'm working on bigger things than I've ever done. And I think John and I think uh, Ugo and Mike and, and the team are all counting on me not going anywhere. But that doesn't mean I'm not working hard to make sure that somebody's there that is capable and will be willing to step in and do what I can do. So. Gents, I really appreciate this. This was lots of fun. Yeah,
1: well, so yeah, so we'd like to thank you, Fred, for coming on. That's been fantastic, of course. Thank you to First National for powering the podcast. Thank you to the Real Estate Forum and Informa for connecting us to Fred and allowing us this opportunity to have a discussion with him. And thank you again, Fred. Thanks to Adam. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. That was a wonderful time.
0: Thank you, guys. Be healthy.
1: <laughs> Will do, Fred. You too. Ciao.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast.